Get up. Welcome, folks. Y'all come on in and make yourself at home. This here, well, this is the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Your home for all things Rolling Thunder. This episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast is presented by Mossy Oak Camouflage because everything is better in Bottomland and Lucky Duck Premium Decoys, Masters of Deception. Welcome to another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Spence, what's going on, man? Hey, buddy. We're making it. Yeah? Yeah. Kind of starting to get back in the normal life routine from the great... The great north. <laughs> dry, not cold prairie. <laughs> no, and it's been it's been good getting back through all the footage and everything. So we've been we've been putting out we put out chapter three. Yep. Really recently. Chapter four is coming. But I don't know, every time you get to kinda go back through everything you get to relive it a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> and so now I kinda understand every time I like we watch an episode or we go through something, you kinda like start like getting starry dyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you kinda like juke and jive and it's kinda yep. like the I don't know. The running back, it goes back to his playing days. You're like, oh, man, yep. I remember exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. That is fun. It is It is like that. You're right. When I still, a lot of those episodes, when I watch them, it just kind of, it takes me back there, you know. Yeah. And it's like, God, that was, that was a good time. You yeah. Know? Or there's little pieces that, like, you kind of, uh-huh. you have a, I don't know if, like, as somebody was filming it or was among the guys filming it, it was, you don't get to really sit back and enjoy the moment when you're not the same way because mm-hmm. I watched it through like a four inch screen, <laughs> which is like yeah. which is cool. But at the same time, when you get to watch it on something else, you're like, "Yeah, oh, that was a yeah. huge we did group." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just so like, "Get the shot, get the shot, and focus, yeah. and focus." Okay, okay, okay. So, um, but anyway, That's it's a good. good it's a good perspective kind of deal. But we've been running around a little bit. Been pretty crazy actually since we've been back. Um, we got the boards in at Little Reno, and uh, man, there's water starting to show up in a few places. People pumping, and some I don't have any water, uh, I was about <laughs> but to say, I know some people who have some water. And uh, just it's that time of the year, man. It's kind of blink twice and turns into November. I know. So it was awesome seeing it the other day and the work that y'all were doing out there. It'll be fun. How are we going to get my drone out of that tree? Uh, you got a frog in your pocket? <laughs> say we. I, I thought for a minute you're including me in that. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were a team. That was all. Yeah, I guess uh, we're not. Oh, we are a team. But I mean, you know, <laughs> so when when, when we, your teammate dies, you bury him. You don't you don't carry him around. <laughs> you, I need the footage. <laughs> well, yeah, I thought I didn't think about that either. Yeah, but I don't have any forty foot ladders laying around. Well, so I so I went there. Um, the so it happened on Tuesday. I went there on a Thursday, and I had like a rope and the weight and all this deal. And I'm out there by myself trying to huck this thing up into the top of the tree, mm. missed it. And every time I miss it, there's that corn that's there, but there's those cockleburrs <laughs> that are in there too. Oh, yeah. So that rope with it's all habitat, that texture, man. we're building habitat. habitat. That's yeah. right. All kinds of stuff. But that rope, when I threw it, it would fall on those burrs. And so I'd oh. have 40 feet of rope with burrs all over it. <laughs> so, oh. so I was like getting in my own head. Like if I miss this, I'm going to have to like pick burrs out Jeez. for 20 minutes. 
That's when you just throw the rope away and buy some new rope. Yeah, I know. I was really, <laughs> really glad I didn't have a saw or anything because that, that's a big tree. But so know. people, some people think that cockaburras are are like an invasive you mm. know, a problem. But what cockaburras are is um, it, it, give you a different perspective. Cockaburras yeah. are actually um, I'm totally drawing a blank on um, what's the little dogs that are brown and small. They're not labs, but they're like, and they're not poodles either. But Talking about the little boykins. spaniels, boykins, yeah. yeah. That's what. That's really all cockaburras are. They're they're boykin deterrent devices <laughs> and golden retriever deterrent devices. I mean, if you have a duck hole that doesn't have any cockaburras, then all your friends with boykins and golden retrievers are going to want to. They're just going to come on in, yeah, yeah and feel comfortable. <laughs> Versus if you got a bunch of cockaburras, you let them like, yeah, sure, you can bring your dog, and then they never ask again. Because <laughs> they have to go to the vet. <laughs> I definitely the- looked like a boykin coming out of that corn because I ha- had it like waist down. And if but, you've uh, never, if you've never taken a boykin mm. through a cockaburra patch, it's the most horrific thing. Like, oh, it's unbelievable! It's unbelievable. It takes forever to get out, but too. I mean, you got to get it out from all their. You have to shave them. Just about. <laughs> I mean, if they're in it long enough, well, Ty- it just mats in there. Uh, yeah, Tyler Coleman has a has a boykin yeah. that he hunts with up up in yeah. PA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I see, every time he he posts pictures, like, so you want a boykin? It's like nobody made you get that boykin. Yeah, <laughs> it's just. And I, I don't have I don't have that big of a problem against boykins, but I do like picking on boykin owners every now and then. Oh yeah, golden retriever owners, but. <laughs> Except for Harrison Gregory. Harrison has a dog named Benny. He's in that picture. Uh, right. Yep, right up there. And Benny will get completely covered in cockaburras, and he can pull them out with his teeth. He picks them out himself? He can pick them out, every single one of them. Like, when I say pick them out, he grabs a hold of them and rips them. I mean, it's hair <laughs> ripping. I mean, he's... It's, so it's, he's at least self-sufficient. Absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. good. And then just kind of spits them out. And, like, if you're in a boat with him, He'll, you know, between between the hole and the ramp, there'll be a pile of like, you know, red hair and cockaburras <laughs> over to the side. I mean, he's he's relentless. I like it. He's the only dog I've ever seen with that kind of dry hair that could actually get rid of his own cockaburras. There you go. So, so <clears throat> we posted. Uh, we kind of had a, a podcast lined up this morning, and then I posted a, or we posted a question on the on the Rolling Thunder page about, hey, hey, what kind of yeah, what kind of questions do you have? And we got a lot of responses, so we kind of pulled a pulled an audible. Kind of humbling. It's like people yeah, actually, people out there actually one are alive and and, and they'll respond. Paying attention, yeah, they'll respond, like, and thought we'd been shadow banned. That's right. Well, hey, <laughs> so we just kind of wanted to get into a lot of those questions, and I guess we're just kind of do like a rapid fire. That's awesome. I don't know how much I can add to a lot of it because a lot of it's kind there's, of a, but there's my a few of them for you for sure. Uh-oh. It's all good. You want to just dive right in? Yeah. Gotta pull him up here. So little Al from South Carolina, he broke the ice. He wanted to know how much stuff did Ian break in Canada. And uh my answer to Al is Ian didn't break anything in Canada. He wasn't there long enough. Uh D D broke some hearts and I think Ian broke some uh some spirits in the airport. Uh <laughs> typical Ian luck. If it something bad can happen, it happens to Ian. Oh uh, man. And he had to take the Uber. Oh, that's right. From Saskatoon. Forgot about that. Got to Saskatoon at like eleven thirty at night. Had to drive a couple hours to yeah. us. So the re- I think the rental car system is broken because they shouldn't let you be able to rent a car if your like you know if your flight gets in after they close. Right, and that's normally that's the case at every airport. They keep a rental car counter open until the last flight. Until the last flight. 
and they, they were just like his. <laughs> so yeah, he like, Ubered like luck. hundreds of miles. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. He says a little Indian guy. He said he got in there, gave the guy an extra 20 bucks, and he said, sorry, man, I got a dog. He said, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> he like, said, I just prayed as I closed my eyes that I didn't wake up on the side of the road somewhere <laughs> tied up, you know. Oh, uh, man. Do we read the handle or do we just say? Oh, I just said little Al. That's what they call him. His dad is Big Al. No, but there's another Al. Oh, I have no idea. Uh so if we know, let's I think we this. should try to read their handle because some of them are going to come out hilarious, and it's worth an <laughs> attempt at the butchered pronunciation. So. All right, you first. <laughs> okay, Kyle Stuffer said, <laughs> "Random blind bag must haves." Uh man, I'm not much of a blind bag guy. You just um, shove everything in your waders. I used to, man. I keep my calls and shells is about it. In a blind bag, I usually keep a beanie and a pair of gloves. Yeah, during the winter. But they get wet because I always carry a backpack. I don't really carry a yeah. blind bag. No and snacks. I always set them in. The, never. I mean, if I remember a snack, it's 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 because you left it somewhere by accident. Yeah, or I had to wait on somebody at a gas station. Normally, everybody's waiting on me, so I just don't usually go in and buy <laughs> a bunch of snacks. Um, I do like having coffee in the woods, but yeah, I guess mine. I almost always have a Mountain Dew during duck season. Oh, really? On me. <laughs> Interesting. I just I drink so much Mountain Dew during duck season. It's bad for you. Yeah, but I I like sweet that stuff. That and a Reese's fast break. That's kind of like oh, those sound amazing. Those two together, but I mean the rest for me is just a bunch of camera gear and stuff. I'm trying not to drop in the water. Yeah, I, it's funny. Some people really are all about their blind bags and kind of got them organized and stuff in every pockets. And I I just don't. I, yeah, I have two bags. I have two backpacks. One that I deer hunt with, and one that I basically waterfowl hunt with and i it's yeah. just i never clean them out never so it's a collection of just whatever i think one time somebody kind of asked this question you said that would imply that i'm organized enough to have everything have in the exactly, same bag exactly that's, so that's yes okay sounds like something i would have said because that's true <laughs> all right so al i don't know al Godin underscore three <laughs> <laughs> so he asked do you guys run frames on resident geese in tennessee if so what are your thoughts man we should yeah. We haven't. And so why do you say so quickly we should? Is it just more space and easier and you can hide people better? It's so much faster. Yeah. I feel like once you've got your covers brushed the first time, you know, then you kind of roll it all up. Roll it all up. Right. And so, I mean, that's, there's a lot of reasons you see people doing it, but convenience is the number one thing. I mean, outfitters are hunting out of them so much because you brush them one time and then you touch them up kind of thing. But, I yeah. mean, you can literally have – a hide for 10 or 15 people and yeah you know in 10 minutes set up yeah. versus i mean if we're in layouts we're an hour of setting up layouts you know for sure um, of, of brushing blinds everybody's going to spend 15 minutes brushing a blind you know it's mm -hmm. it's and and then you got to find grass and all that so we should but we don't very often and i would say kind of the reason we don't is um <laughs> man I mean, there's it, not a good reason. Yeah. The, the the main reason is because this is going to sound so silly, but Dylan loves to hunt out of layout blinds. Yeah. And he feels like that they decoy better over layout blinds and, and get closer. Hmm. And so most of the time when we're shooting local geese, we hunt uh, corn. Yep. And so it's tall stubble and, and you can make layouts just disappear. disappear. And, yeah. And, and knee high stubble, corn stubble that hadn't been mowed or tilled under. I mean, you should make it disappear. But, I mean, you could do the same thing with 
with an A-frame, and they don't care. It's it's kind of just like a – trying to think of a good metaphor, but it's a style thing. I mean, it's kind of like do you drive a Ford or do you drive a Chevy? Do you drive a – you know, do you, do you fish with a plastic worm or are you, you know, spinnerbait, crankbait kind of a guy? Like yeah. it's, a, it's a style thing. and Temperament kind of thing. Our trailer just – We've never, we've not gotten into the A-frame stuff big. We've definitely shot them out of A-frames. Yeah. Um, we shot out of A-frames in February last year in Missouri and just beat the brakes off of them. On the old grindcation. Yeah, and we were like, man, we're going to do this forever. And then we're going to do and then this carry four, We carried four A-frames to Canada and didn't set them up the first time, and we should have every yeah. time. I mean, I feel like you could make some room in the trailer, too, if you got rid of the A-frames. Yeah, I mean, you could, but if you – if are, we, are, are there if we times covered the bru- if we covered the pan if we covered the if we brushed the panels of the A frames yeah it would take up more room than the blinds than the layout blinds so you kind of have to pick one or the other oh. you know it's hard to sort of do both and we're always sort of doing both yeah okay I guess to to kind of take uh, his question just like one step further is there a time when you just you just have to run a layout and is there a time when you just have to run an A frame or is it pretty much just preference all the time. You can make either work in just about every situation. I got you. I will say that the the biggest difference between whether that one works or not is how well you brush them in. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, with with layouts, the mistake we always make, and everybody makes this, is you just don't brush them enough. You think you've brushed them. You've put a yeah. giant thing of a brush or grass in every single loop. Well, you, you need to brush in between the blinds, off the ends of the blinds, yeah. the fronts of them, the backs of them. You need to actually make that look like a wet spot that the farmer went around and left the grass tall versus just a rectangle of grass. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. no, I don't think there's a time when one necessarily is the only option versus another. But, I mean, because if you, if you hunt fence rows – I mean, layouts hide just as well as a A-frame. I got you. Okay. Biggest thing an A-frame gives you that a layout doesn't is is better shots. Yeah, that's and, what I was going to ask. Do you feel like you shoot better? Oh, no doubt about it. I have an A-frame. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're I had standing to get, up. Yeah. I mean, I had to get used to shooting from my butt. Like, I've you never sit, really you done shoot, that. You shoot swinging shots better. Like, if the, like if the birds are kind of swinging over the top of you or or coming from behind, like, kind of landing over your shoulder mm-hmm. or you know if they mm-hmm. if the wind swirls and they don't want to be right at your feet everyone can just literally turn right. yeah versus with layout blinds you're just you're very one-dimensional straight out front i got gotcha. you okay yes i mean uh, so to answer al's question we should take our layouts out of the trailer and we should hunt in a-frames in the middle of dirt fields i mean you can hide in a, it to your eye it doesn't look hid but to you know the birds. It's, it's, it's not. They don't see it as an A-frame. Yeah. You know? Okay. You got the next one here. Yeah, Lost Gus. Uh, what's your setup for hunting ducks in the woods slash water to a dry field situation? Um. So, you know what people define as woods is a broad, broad spectrum of things. Okay, there's like in. In Mississippi, you have a lot of what people refer to as breaks, mm-hmm. which are like cypress, um, 
swampy, <clears throat> like cypress lakes kind of looking things that are really open where ducks can see a lot versus in Arkansas you have mature, thick, flooded green timber. And the primary difference between those two kinds of timber, quote unquote, is visibility. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I try to set up to hunt ducks, it's more about it's not really about whether it's wet or dry or whether it's timber or field. It's really about whether or not the ducks can see or not. Okay. So I kind of I boil it all down to every duck you're hunting is either a visual opponent or he's an audible opponent. Hmm. So in thick woods, your your spread really doesn't matter. I mean, you don't have to have decoys. You can kick water, you know, you're because the ducks are listening. Yeah. Which is why cut downs and loud calling, calling is at a premium because the ducks are listening versus a big open water spread, a big blind or a big flat field yeah. or even an open break with a few trees. Your spread is completely is your spread is the deal. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can call bad, you can call good. I mean, it helps, but at the end of the day, they're they're really not coming to the calling like they are when they can't see the decoys. Yeah, yeah. When they can't see the decoys, they're coming to the calling because they hear it versus what they can see. So, okay. When I when I break it down, when I'm like when I'm trying to decide my setup, I it's to me it's always about visual versus non-visual. Yeah. And when I'm if I'm in a dry field or you know, I think that ducks, ducks decoy a little different than geese, and then honkers decoy a little different than snows, specks, and lessers. Snows, specks, and lessers, or snows, lessers, and then specks. I guess kind of as a third, they want to be at the front of the pack, at the thickest spot of the decoys. Gotcha. So, so you 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 kind of generally speaking, you set your decoys where. Your your kill hole is where the thickest mass of of your decoys are because it's what gets their attention and that's the upwind side of your spread. So theoretically, the geese are going to get low, way out in front of you, and work up because geese are are greedier than mm-hmm. the others, and they um they so they want to roll over themselves and they're if you watch geese in a the field they're always kind of jumping ahead of each other and jumping ahead yeah. of each other thinking that the grass is greener ahead kind of thing um honkers don't really act like that and ducks don't act like that so with honkers and ducks i'm trying to light them short of the decoys so so it, wherever i want my kill hole to be i, I leave that open you leave a spot for them. and then kind of either create a u or a j or kind of a pocket so that I, d- I try not to make ducks or honkers come over a bunch of decoys before they land. I try to give them an open path where they, land. where they can see decoys on the sides, but basically where they're they're stopping short of the decoys. So if I'm in the woods, if it's a big open woods hole, I typically put the decoys around the edge of the woods I got on the you. side I'm standing on because I I don't want them to come over the top of the decoys. You mm. know, I want them to I want them to light short of the decoys, like in the middle of the spread. I also don't really put the decoys right out in the middle of the hole put them around the edges because ducks don't sit out in the middle of the No, because the they land hole. and then they go to they the – They land they and they swim. Move yeah, to the that's edges. Right. That's right. I got you. Okay. Right. Okay. And um, he also asked, do small spreads still work in today's hunting times? Ab- absolutely. Um, so, again, I think that's a little bit um, species-related okay. and then time of year. Um, we hunt a lot of small spreads early <laughs> in September because we're hunting small groups of geese. So – 
if we have a, a field, let's just say here at home, that's got 100 honkers in it, we're probably only going to set out two dozen decoys um, because those resident geese live in family groups all year. They kind of know they how know many. each other. They know how many are supposed to be there. And so, yeah. like, the first group of the morning, you know, if it's 30 geese and you've got 70 decoys out there, they're like, whoa, what whoa, who heck? are these people? And yeah. so it, it's not usually enough to make them leave the field. But, they but might if you land. have 70 decoys, they're probably going to land 100 yards from you because – those 30 geese know that there's some in that 70 that are going to kick their butt for feeding with them. Like they're fighting, you know what I mean? And so they stay in little clusters. So, um, you know, small spreads definitely work. Unfortunately, a lot of the times when we're in Canada or out in the Midwest, we have to hunt a big spread more for visibility and trafficking of, Mm -hmm. of the, of, of, you know, the, the birds we're hunting or to hide people. So yeah. if we're sitting in the decoys and we have ten guns, I mean, you just can't. Really, it's pretty hard to hide ten guns and only have twenty four decoys. You yeah, know, if you're trying to sit in the spread. So, yeah. so I mean, because heck, even if you had like six or seven socks around each person, that's still nothing. Like yeah, you still got to put a bunch out there. Right, you got to have some shape to your. You know, that's sixty decoys right there. Right. I guess is what I'm getting at is like right. that's how that spread just gets huge. Right. So for sure, small spreads definitely <coughs> work. Um, but I would kind of if if I was trying to decide between a small spread or a big spread, it's typically it's a combination of how many guys I got hunting, and then um, am I hunting on X like exactly where I know they want to be, and they're coming there anyways. Mm-hmm. Versus are are we just kind of under some a flight line? Yeah, if we're just trying to under pull a flight down. flight line, and we're just running traffic. And I want to be really big and visible, and lots of motion, and you know, trying to run a circus spread. You know, okay. Uh, Matthew Palmer, when field hunting, do you use or prefer a blind for the dog? Um, yeah, I definitely use a blind. Uh, Brooke does not use a blind. She refuses to get in the blind. Actually, she gets in the blind, turns around, and then comes out and sits right in front of it. Um, she, which or sits is kind on of me. Annoying, but or yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. Um, so. It, and that's that's not a good excuse. I shouldn't accept that, but she's just getting old, and I kind of don't yeah. make her follow all yeah. the rules anymore. But, yeah, I use a blind. Uh, I, my favorite dog blind is the Rig'em Right blind. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a – I mean, it will collapse to the size of a pizza box, mm-hmm. too. I mean, you can stick that thing anywhere. It's kind of a shaped like a mm-hmm. – um, it's not square. Yeah. And so it's easy to brush in. I like to put you the blind kind of – You can fit in between mm-hmm. blinds. I like to put the blind kind of behind us. Um, for two reasons. One is Brooke likes to creep a little bit. She's not a breaker, but she likes to get out and walk five or six feet, and that tends to be like right in your way. And so, yeah, Ma just so she can see. Walk. Yeah, she likes to see and mark and um, but uh, you know, they there used to be a blind. Jed uses a blind that I think is awesome. It's actually like a cage mm-hmm. has a door on it, and I wish I had one of those. And I, I one of these days I need to build that and sell it as a product because it it's so effective for keeping the dog contained. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses it a lot, snow goose hunting and with clients just because people are shooting everywhere and he really doesn't want to send a dog until everybody's kind of got their guns put away. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, but at, that would kill Brooke to have to lay down and be she in a box. bust that door down. <laughs> so so when, when Jed sends Taz, it's awesome because he knows it's like – 
the second right when uh, when but, Jed yeah. gets his hand down there, yeah. like he he so much as like breathes on that button, <laughs> yeah. and Taz is halfway out yeah. to whatever bird he's getting. It's yeah. cool. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, I I will say though that if we're sitting in um if we're sitting in whites or sitting in darks even um just in silhouettes and stuff, then no, I don't put a blind out. Yeah, I only put a blind out if we're hunting out of layouts. Um, even if we're hunting out of um, an A-frame, I don't typically yeah. use a dog blind. I, and I, 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 I don't really like hunting dogs out of an A-frame unless they're unless it's my dog, one. Dogs in A-frames are dangerous. Dogs like to walk in. They knock over guns. Yeah, and, and there's just not a good way to hold a gun up in an A-frame, and the dog's right down there at the bottom of the gun. And so, I mean, his face, his tail, everything is right down there in the – trigger range and yeah. faces human faces are yeah. in barrel ranges. I mean it's a dogs and a sketchy is, is sketchy and yeah. dangerous. So it's that's a be very careful. Mm. But if I if I'm hunting out of an A frame, a big group, I hunt on an end. Yeah. Well especially just so the dog can get out anyway. Yeah. Um but that'll also you can put yourself between her and the rest of everybody so she's not walking laps. Yeah. Um a question speaking of sitting in whites or darks. Mm-hmm. Um my wife asked me a question that I didn't quite know how to answer. <laughs> she said, "Why do you, why do you even wear white if you're lying on the ground? That's brown. Don't you just look like a giant goose <laughs> that's gonna fight with them?" That's uh, kind of what her question was, and I said, "Well, it just kind of breaks up, so like your yeah, it your, breaks it up your silhouette. It does. It well, and and you also have to recognize that." Right there where the hunters are. Remember, mm-hmm. snow geese. It's a big concentration. Want to be right at the front, and so you're trying to create a mob effect. Okay. So right there around where where your shooters are sitting, you're putting your socks the tightest together. Gotcha. As you get out from from where the hunters are sitting, it's it's thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And so if you if you were a brown blob surrounded on 365 by by white socks moving, yeah. you would stick out really bad. Yeah, because they're not seeing the ground underneath those. There's so much movement of white and socks that you need to be. You're not moving. Everything around you is moving. So the best yeah. way for you to blend in is to be the same color. So you, in fact, do not look like a giant goose. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll if you're that if you're if you're sitting if you're sitting in darks, which we don't do that very much because we don't have a giant silhouette spread and we don't hunt lessers very much. But I have done it, and 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 when you do that, you um. You just put silhouettes all around you, dark, you know, Canada goose silhouettes all around mm-hmm. you, and so mm-hmm. you're, you're, you you wear a black sweatshirt or you're dark, like the yeah, s- more similar to the color of the the decoys. Uh huh. I got gotcha. you. Okay. So Adam Moore asks, do you shoot the same constriction for Jebs for everything? Uh, or do you no. change it up for turkey and waterfowl? Um, no, I I shoot um. Let me think. I shoot a 680 out of my 12 gauge, which is like a heavy modified or a, a modified basically. And I'm shooting a 585 out of my 20 gauge at ducks. For ducks and waterfowl, I think I was shooting a 595. Okay. So. I guess there's a little difference between a five eighty and five ninety five, but the it's not that much. I mean it's yeah. 
I, I yes, I could shoot the same. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, but but I tend to err on the side of more open, spread out pattern than a super super tight pattern. Yeah. Um, most turkey hunters, most turkey gun nerds in a twelve gauge are shooting a five sixty five. I mean a six sixty five for a twelve gauge, and I'm shooting a five eighty. That's pretty good bit of more open. Most people would not consider a 580 a turkey choke. It's it's more of a waterfowl choke. Yeah. It's a it's a tight waterfowl choke. Um, but I, my theory has always been with TSS and turkeys that you got more pellets yeah. in the shell, and so it only takes one TSS pellet to kill a gobbler. And so I'd rather that pattern be a little more spread out. So you have a little bit more margin of error. Yeah. Than I would have, it's super super tight. I mean, and then the other thing that always plays into this that I think people think I'm joking, but my eyes are just not good. I've only got vision in one eye. Yeah. And when you're in the woods and it's tight and you're bared down on, you know, on a little red head out there at forty yards, like I need all the I need everything working in my favor that I yeah. can get. <laughs> so you actually shoot a, a more open for turkeys than you do for ducks. No, oh, no five ninety five is. I mean, six ninety five is more open than a six eighty. Right. I'm sorry. Weeks. I just flipped. Just which ones you were using? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just shoot a six eighty five for everything. W- right. Which I mean, that's that's fine. That's what I'm saying. I could makes dove season tricky. Sometimes the primary reason that I don't honestly shoot is because I shoot different guns, and so yeah. I have a different choke. It's in already each gun. on there. Right. If yeah. I shot the same gun, I probably. I probably would shoot the same yeah. joke too, but I'm too lazy to <laughs> to change it out. Well, it I just I don't know. I've I don't know what the long term effect of shooting TSS down your barrel is. Um and I've I've always kind of just thought once I had my turkey going the way I wanted it, I have an I have a M one Super ninety and it's shoots very true, no rise to it, no, you know, left and right. Once I got it the way I wanted, I just kinda left it alone. Yeah. I put yeah. it up at the end of the year and I take it out and shoot it, make sure it's you know still everything's still straight there. And, and I for and sure I don't I don't I'm h- too hard on my waterfowl gun to to want to depend on it to shoot straight. <laughs> That's me in a forty yard shot of the it's turkey. True. You know, so seen, yeah, more than one of those barrels have gotten bent <laughs> over yeah. time just from throwing it around. Yeah. Um. All right. What do we got next? So you can take Austin's or Adam's other. Yeah, I can answer Adam's other real quick. Are he's Adam Moore said, "Are y'all ever hiring at Rolling Thunder?" Yes, all the time. Um, we have seven or eight different people that work in the shop. Um, tuners, we've got folks that help pull and package different parts. I mean, we're a full service. Like we manufacture everything from start to finish, and so we've got a couple of folks that um, that pull part uh, the individual components that built that make a call like the barrel or the blank or the band or the reed or the court and they'll pull stuff in batches and then set it up for Aaron or the guys to tune um Mm -hmm. and then we have people that help we've got a guy named Dario right now that's helping Russ he's sanding pots by hand so um we we machine all of our um wood pots for the pot calls and all of our wood parts there at the um warehouse and at Roselle and so there's a lot of hands on deck and we're always yeah. looking for folks. Um unfortunately, you know, the 
the the only negative I would say is just you know the the old adage of if you want to be a millionaire being a call maker you better start out being a billionaire <laughs> you know because <laughs> it's just not a it's not a glamorous lifestyle I mean it's what we do is a lot of fun but the actual call making side of it's just it's a grind it's just work yeah. you know and yeah those boys work really hard it's high labor and for um, sure so. Uh, and then he, he also asked, do you tune your brute differently for fields? No. Um, no, I, I, I tend to, I'm not a guy that I don't really tune my calls very much. I yeah. get one the way I like it and I don't jack with it. Um, yeah. I can if I need to, but well, you just I, let it ride like, until you have to mm-hmm. fix something. I like my calls to, sometimes I will now, every now and then if I get a call that I, that I really like in the woods, it's loud. And, and if I was going to hunt with it up North, flat ground like laying on my back i might trim my reed just a little bit shorter just because would you just grab a different call or would you talking you would take that one that you like that's loud and risk making it man i'm not as loud you know every it i kind of i kind of do calls the way i do trucks like i when i get one i like i drive it till the wheels fall off of it and so it just depends on how i feel if i if a reed busts up and I got to put a new reed in there and it feels a little stiff. I might trim it a little bit lighter if I know I'm going to be laying on my back for the next two weeks. And then when I get to Arkansas, I may pop a new reed in there and just leave you. it a little bit longer. Because when you're standing up and you're excited and you're trying to break high ducks, that's different than laying on your back trying to just chatter and finish tight ducks, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. The wind's a whole lot different on your back. Yeah. So, um, Austin Oliver asks, so like, duck calling scenarios. Mm-hmm. I know this is probably one of those depends types questions, but certain specific calls for certain birds and how they're acting. Yeah, so uh, he's, his other question is about decoy spreads. Yeah. And I'm going to lump those two together. Okay. And we kind of sort of touched on it earlier. Um, to me, I still say this is about visual versus audible. Hmm. So it, with ducks anyways, um, I'm not, I don't know enough about calling geese to, to you know, tell anybody anything uh, the best the best goose call is, is diesel fuel and scouting time <laughs> in my opinion uh with ducks i'm totally just trying to decide am i hunting ducks who can see my spread and her visual yeah. versus audible um and then the only i guess exception to that is if i'm hunting a field and there's some flight ducks I'm obviously going to call loud at them and try to get their attention and try to get them to look at the spread. But ultimately, all I'm trying to do is to get their attention. Mm-hmm. I'm making noise. And once I've got their attention, I'm kind of letting the decoy spread do the work. And I I'm, got you. And, and when I'm calling at them, I'm really more trying to not mess them up than I am actually get them to finish. Yeah. So I'm reading their body language, and as long as they're kind of doing what I'm wanting, then I'm, backing, I'm steady backing off. I got you. The woods is the other way around. When they're, when they're swinging – I'm staying on them until I get them to change and, and line up with the wind and come to me. And I don't back off of them until they're about to drop, you know, through the first part of the canopy. And so I'm pouring it to them and pouring it to them because they're lit there. It's, it's audible. They're listening to listen, visual. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're up there and there's lots of stuff to distract them. And I'm trying to, it's kind of like keeping tension in your line when you're reeling a fish in like i'm trying to not have slack in the line oh for sure whereas in a big field i'm the only game in that field you know what i mean like yeah like a duck if so I, you're if more I've apt got a, to let them swing and exactly. then get out and then pull yeah. back and then kind of hush up yeah. and then let them swing. in fact in fact i really want them to go far because the farther they go out and they, swing they the more, more time to the land. lower they get right and i'd rather them work to me low 
than I would high. And if you stay on them kind of in a field, they tend to kind of just stay right up top making tight circles. Yep. Because you can definitely, you know, when they start to swing, you pour it to them, and they're going to swing back. I mean, and they'll swing with your call. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they try to get them to swing too fast. So if the wind is blowing behind you and the duck is the ducks are swinging, let's call that uh, counterclockwise, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so they're swinging kind of from your left side around your right side. They get around your right side. The wind's blowing straight behind you. So now they're they're coming around like on a clock face, say five o'clock, four o'clock, three o'clock, and the wind is not going to hit them in the face until they get up to noon. Okay, mm-hmm. people will start pouring it to them when they're at three, two, one. Because what it's it's sort of like making a turkey gobble. What you want to see is you want to see him hit his wings yep. and really dip into the wind. React. And and what you ought to let him do is go from three o'clock, go way out and get two or three hundred yards on you. That way before the wind, the wind hits more. him in the face. Well, it's the wind's the same either way. Yeah, it's a matter of it's a it's a matter of. I mean, think about it like a plane. Like you really want. But I guess what it is in relation to how they can respond to the spread, though. If they if they're all the way up at twelve, it's easier for them to trickle back to the to well, right the, T versus the, at three, because then they had to have to come across it more. But the, the metaphor is breaking down on the clock face because we're I'm not sorry. talking about distances. You know what I mean? I got you. So I got you. What I'm getting at is that the wind's going to hit them in the face when they get to twelve. It's a matter of whether they're a hundred yards from you or three hundred yards from you. Yeah, yeah. So I'd rather them be three hundred yards from me when the wind hits them in the face than I would them be fifty or a hundred yards. Mm, because mm. if they're that tight to you, then they have to fall straight down versus more of a gentle incline. Right. Kind of like a airplane wouldn't circle the the runway really in, tight. Really tight. He would do it wide so yeah. that he, you know, it's a more comfortable. And so, I got you. That makes that, a lot of that's, sense. Okay. To to me, when you, uh, I, I I don't know, we've. I'm rabbit trailing here, but when you're calling ducks, that's the mistake I see people make is they feel like they're going to lose them. And sometimes you do lose them, but, but when they get to about that three o'clock, they pour it to them and they just make them stay tight to you too tight to you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like let them get out there a little bit yeah. further and call them back. Cause once they get out there a little further and you call them back, they act different. They, yeah. they, they got more time for the wind to hit them in the face and they just feel more comfortable. Yeah. You know? I guess also if you're calling them when they're real tight to you, they're more likely to actually maybe even turn quick and get a real good look at what you're doing on the ground too and maybe see you and see could something be. they don't like. Yeah, could be. Could um, be. Bo Bray asked, and I think you answered this one earlier, but just wanted to acknowledge it. It's the question about how important is the quality of decoys in the public woods. And, again, I think it's a like you are saying, it's a situation of the, the audible or the visual. Uh, or the visual. So, yeah, um, that's pretty much true. I will say – that um, I don't think that the quality or the visual of the decoy is that important for getting them to break through the trees. Mm-hmm. But where I do think it makes a difference is in a in a big wood setting or a public setting where you're really trying to troll for a big wad of ducks. The big wad of ducks is typically not going to be the first ones that come through the trees. You're typically going to have one or two or five or two and then five and then ten. And then all of a sudden there's kind of like a – there's a the toilet bowl effect. I mean, it's yeah. like once they start once they start getting in there, then it's like the bottom falls out. And so I do think that having really high-quality looking decoys, I think that that makes the first couple that sit on the water, I think it relaxes them a little more. Yeah, okay. That's um, a, so, so when the first two or three – you know, that loudmouth hen comes in, she sits down, 
like if she's sitting in a bunch of black two liter bottles, I think she's sketched <laughs> she's gonna be out. like, wait, yeah. I mean, I think she's looking yeah. at it and going, not nah, jigs up, and so she's just she gets the hell out, you know. Yeah. Versus if she's in a spread that's you know very realistic looking, I think that she sits there. Maybe it's a difference of sitting there three seconds versus sitting there thirty seconds. You know, well yeah. in thirty seconds you get two more bunches. Well, next thing you know, you got. 500 on the trees. Yeah. Because that's what they're looking for. They're listening, but they're looking for where all the other ducks are going. going and they're, down. they're a me too, man. They they follow each other. I got you. Okay. So, so I, so I don't think it matters for actually getting them come through the trees. I do think it matters for consistently getting big groups of the trees. So, I mean, I hunt over decoys that are really pretty flocked heads. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like, I like hunting over pretty decoys. I think there's something to it. Gotcha. Uh, so Ben, um, man, that's a good question. He said, what was the public woods like growing up versus now? Love the backstories on the public woods, man. I could talk about that for days. Uh, the biggest difference in the public woods in Arkansas right now versus when I was a kid, so I'm about to be 40, 20 years ago was the end of the guiding error. Okay, so from the time I was about 10 until I was 20, call that the 90s, um, you had – I mean, it, it was all pre – it didn't start in the 90s, but that was kind of the last 10 years from 1990 to 2000 was about the last 10 years that you could guide in the public woods. Yeah. When the guides were in the public woods, it was very organized. It was pretty ruthless, and they broke lots of rules. They cut down trees they weren't supposed to. They cleaned out holes. They – you know, they, they, but there was an order kind of to the chaos. Yeah. And it wasn't a free for all. And now it's just sort of a, um, a free for all of people trying to make a name for themselves as a boat racer or trying to be the next great, you know, big log shot. Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more every year groups like, especially the first couple weekends of the year or on the opener. 25, 30 guns, trying to shoot 120, you know, like teaming up together. And what they're doing is they're 8 or 10 over here and 8 or 10 over here and 8 or 10 over here, and they're kind of blocking off a whole section of woods, and they're all converging on what what would be the best spot if nobody else was around, and then they try to donkey stomp them right there as a group. And, I mean, I don't it, – it's hard to sit here and fuss at them or say that that's wrong. I get it. I mean, it's – it's a lot of fun to smile behind the log with 120 miles on it. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it's that's a uh, that's pretty awesome. And 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 there's a lot of effort and lost sleep that goes into that. But um, so I'm not trying to necessarily make a value judgment and browbeat. You know, the folks that are that are doing that, I get it. It's you know, there is a there's a fun appeal to that. It's definitely not the older I get. It's not my cup of tea, and it's definitely changed. Um, sure, you would have never seen that that kind of crap. You know, would have never existed when the guides were running around in the woods. Yeah. So, I guess that's kind of it. I, I do think that the ducks have changed a lot too. I think that in the last twenty years, the private landowners um, have really figured out intensive duck habitat management, food management. I think they're kicking Arkansas game and fish right square in the teeth. In my mind, there's almost no reason why a duck would want to go to the big 30,000-acre WMAs, the two or three of them. There's two of them. 
but the few really large WMAs that exist don't have that much to offer for a duck. They don't have much food. They don't have much cover. The rest areas are just open water. Mm. I mean, if I was a duck, I wouldn't go to those places. If I did, I'd just be sitting there at nighttime and <laughs> I'd go to you know fancy private club during the rest of the day. And yeah, and it's not just one. I, you know, I'm not singling anybody out. It's all up and down the flyway. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of north of Tony Vandemore. I mean, there's there's people holding water in the Dakotas and holding water in Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska and sure. I mean, it's it's habitat management is like a whole industry now. It's not just Jeff Farmer at White Oaks or just you know Tony Vandemore at Habitat Flats. It's yeah. I mean, it's a it's an industry. I mean, look at twenty years ago. You know I mean, what else just didn't small happen? Clubs doing that with yeah. You know, twenty years ago, guys. people weren't letting six points walk either. You know, or eight points walk. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and now now what you see is people shooting eight points because they don't want eight point genetics in their deer herd. Like they want tens and twelve. You know, like habitat management and and the, like the development of game. Yeah. is a whole industry. I mean, it's a sure. it's a whole thing that did not exist in the nineties. I mean, it just didn't, nobody talked about that. Nobody like you had a rice field, maybe, but everybody who was somebody hunted in the public woods in Arkansas because it was the best mallard hunting available. Yeah. Now it's not. I mean, now a guy can go and with a modest sum of money, he can build a place in Oklahoma or he can build a place in Kansas or he can build a place in Arkansas, leave just a little bit of crops. And it's not, you're not talking about ultra wealthy guy to have, you know, six or eight, quality hunts a year 10 hunts i mean heck i'm doing it you know and and it's not we don't have a a bunch of money we're not rich guys we're just regular blue collar guys and renting a skid steer when we can and asking somebody who can drive it i mean we're just figuring it out you know but um that's the that that's really not what ben asked but that to me that's the biggest question that's the biggest thing i've seen changes no guides and then the land development and habitat development is just the public government has just not kept up with the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so um, Alex Dorino asks, "Where did Rolling Thunder, <laughs> Rolling Thunder, come from?" And I, I think that means not the origins of the company, but the name. Yeah. Um, and, he's, and, I, and I'm trying to <laughs> you, you read the you rest, can read of, the rest of He said I know the answer but I hope it has to do with Taco Bell uh, <laughs> that's hilarious it has nothing to do with Taco Bell um, so the, the first guy that introduced me to a cut down call um, is an outfitter and uh, he's kind of a peculiar old guy and um, he's the best duck caller I've ever hunted with he's unbelievable he um, he called his guide service calls currently calls his guide service Rolling Thunder Waterfowl Guide Corp. And, okay, uh, and so I named the company after him because I felt like he kind of, I felt like I, I still feel like I owe him what little bit I know about anything. I feel like I learned from him. That's awesome. Um, and so, I, I, you know, that Toxie Hayes said, you know, we're all just standing on the shoulders of giants, and people look at me or look at someone like Toxie or they, and, they, and what they see is what you've done. But what somebody like me sees is who got us there, you know? And, yeah. and I mean, and I don't say that in a pompous way because I'm, I'm, st- I'm a nobody, but, but somebody instilled stuff into me. Somebody instills every successful person has people behind them, pushing yeah. them along the way. And so I just, you know, I don't know. I asked, I asked that fellow, I said, what, what do you think I ought to name this, this company? And he said, man, whatever you want to name it. And I said, I want to name it Rolling Thunder. And he said, that's amazing. And I said, you 
feelings aren't hurt. He was like, no. He said, imitation's the finest form of flattery. <laughs> he said, I'm very flattered. Um, he got his name. That, so the story on him, that he got his name because he, he always said that he wanted to be, uh, when his group shot out, he wanted everybody else in the woods to know that that was him because it was the rolling thunder in the distance, you know. It was just yep. big volleys. And uh, so That's awesome. I thought that was kind of cool. It's cool. Jake White wants to know what's on the lanyard this year. Uh, I'm rocking a Brute R and a Poly Brute. Um, I've always kind of had my ult on my lanyard, but last year I had uh, my truck broken into middle of January – had four shotguns stolen, a whole bunch of trail cameras, binoculars, spot and scope. I was just on my way back from Arkansas and kind of had all my stuff. And um, I it it kind of was like a gut check. Kind of rattled you a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I've never carried my bands on my lanyard. and um, But I had Tripp's lanyard in there, and he had a couple of bands that were pretty special. Um neither of which he killed, but he was there when they were killed and they were given to, given to him. Um, and, and so, you know, we lost his lanyard. I had a, mm. I had one of those $400 Oak Creek hand braided lanyards. I mean, that hurt and I'd had it a long time. And so I just kind of, I don't know, it was a gut check time. I was like, you know, I own a duck call company. I really ought to just blow one right I off the probably shelf, make you one. Know? Yes. And I probably should not be carrying around this favorite, you know, Old that I've blown for all these years and made these other calls to sound just like this call. Like yeah, I, yeah. you know, I'm gonna if that if that thing disappeared, I'd really you know well, that was have my, my feelings. Hurt. That was my very first question when you told me that the, it got broken into, and yeah. I said, "Did was your was your old on there? Was your call on there?" It had been, and uh, and I and I had taken it off. I, somebody sat on my backpack. And I about threw up because I thought, oh, my God, I bet my call just snapped in half. And and, and I took it off. Um, I took it off about four days before my truck got broke into. So I was very thankful for that. And yeah. I, so I retired the old girl. And I didn't even blow it that much. It was just kind of like having your favorite, you know, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, it's like a good luck totem. Yeah, like and just child. kind of a comfort. It's like, you know, here it is. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so Kevin Williams asks, what's the best way to hide in a cut wheat or barley field when the birds want to be out in the middle? I feel like we kind of touched on that, but I at least want to acknowledge that you yeah. sent in the question and appreciate it. I would say you got a couple options. Either get white and a big white spread, or a frame. if you're going to do A-frames, make your blind big and not mm-hmm. look like a blind. Limbs, yeah. lots of grass, and then limbs and, you know, really brush it in can we can we touch on grass real quick because there was a situation where we're not perfect right so there was a a morning that it was like our one of our first mornings to hunt we it was dark we kind of knew where we were going there was this readily available source of brush that looked like there was a busted round roll yeah i mean it was a from that field from that field yeah and so we you had know, not seen it, it the evening before. Yeah. We, it stood to reason that since it was right out of that field that it was going to be good. But, you know, when we got to where we were going, it was further away from that color grass. All this kind of – Well, so the, the deal on the color of that was just sunlight. Yeah. The the, the bale just had not been bleached by the sun. So the, ble- right. the bale was still gold. So bright. The field was bleached because, you know, the, that bale had – I mean, that field had been harvested – 
exactly. two months ago. Exactly. The mistake we made there was not pulling it necessarily out of the bale because it was a different color. The biggest mistake we made on that hunt, was not. And, and mind you, we shot 70 on that hunt, so it's, it's hard <laughs> it's, to call it yeah. too bad of a mistake. The biggest mistake we made is, I mean, we put the whole kitchen sink out. So we had we had 70 dozen silhouettes and 30 dozen socks. We should have just sat in whites. I mean, there's no reason to have yeah. been in layouts. Yeah. Um, but, you know, couple, I was just asking about guys love layouts. Color. Yeah, I was just kind of asking about, like, when, when is it better to, like, some guys want to cut brush from and have it in the truck, but in some ways it's better to cut it from a, a source that's on the boundary of the field. Well, you got two different, you got two different theories when it comes to brushing stuff. Yeah. Are you going to try to match exactly what's in that field mm-hmm. and, like, look just like the field? So, like a pea field. The only way to do that is to take a shovel and to dig out and then to brush the very tops of your blinds. That's the way the old school, that's the way the old timers did it. They'd yeah. dig a trough and they'd lay in the trough and they'd have a blanket across. That way that you're at the ground level. Okay? Yeah. I, I ain't doing that. I don't even put up shovel in the Makes truck. Makes a ton of sense. We could just get uh, a little mini excavator on the trailer. and the, the other way to do brush is the way that, say, there's a couple of good outfitters that do this, but not many of them. It's kind of a lost art, but they brush their blinds, and it has nothing to do with what's in the field. So color really doesn't matter, but but it's a mixture of color. And so it's a mixture of rough grasses of you know with reds and yellows and browns and every color. It just looks like weeds, basically. Right. And so you can put that anywhere. And the trick to that is having dimensional cover. So... Like I know one guy who who carries a small trailer around. Um, he and he's he's an outfitter, so he's able to have two trailers. But he carries a second trailer with nothing but brush in it, and it's full of like the big tumbleweeds that are the size of a beach ball. Man, those are and, awesome when you can put those kind of behind you. Yep, or in between you and in yep. front of you. You know, you you scatter those around, and what happens is now all of a sudden from the air, you're not a rectangle. You don't look like a shoebox. You look like <laughs> you don't look like a shoe. You know what I mean? You look like an <laughs> <Yeah>. amoeba. <laughs> you know, you exactly. got a tail off one end. I mean, you just well, all you're trying to do is not get a duck or a goose to look at you and. Pay attention and right, go, whoa, right, right. what the hell is that? You're just trying not to and when you're up. a perfect square, that's not they're kinda like, natural. wait a minute, there's not any you know Yeah, yeah. So so they we we overthink it and we try to match the field. And mm-hmm. sometimes in trying to match the field, you're just making yourself look like a box that yeah. looks just like the field. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, because naturally, I mean, we try to create order. And a lot of times it's like, no, you don't need too much of that. Yeah, and they don't think about that. No. They, they're just literally thinking about, you know. All you're trying to do is to get them to not notice it. So you're trying yeah. to look like something that could possibly be there. Like, a, I mean, honestly, you could probably put a hay bale where we were sitting a big round bale blind and have done better <laughs> than we did in those layouts just because yeah. we, we brushed those layouts in like the stubble that was in the field, but there wasn't much stubble right there where we were. It just stuck. It just didn't blend. Yeah. You know? it, yeah. It, um, anyways, it – so it's not necessarily about color. I think it's about breaking up multiple colors and and, and different heights silhouette. of stuff. And yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna let you take this next one from Ian. Let's see. Uh, where is it? Oh, um, <laughs> Ian said, "Have you ever seen anyone poop on their wallet?" Yes, actually, uh, I did not see it, <laughs> but I, I heard about it. Uh, oh, Keelan. Samples this year in Canada went over to Fence Row one morning while we were setting up. He had his 
drop a load, and he uh, apparently his wallet fell right out of his back pocket, and I mean, he he, he dropped the morning load right on top of his wallet, and <laughs> he said, "I just got down and looked down there. <laughs> there he said, was." I, he said, "I was so mad." He said, I picked it up on the corner, and I tried to sling it, and he said, it wouldn't come off. <laughs> Somebody said, what would you do next? And he said, well, then I took it, and I wiped it on something else, and it still hardly wouldn't come off. We were like, okay, okay, Keelan, stop. <laughs> I think I think uh, we definitely <laughs> – that's worth it. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, Adam, actually, Adam Campbell – said what are your thoughts on how to set up decoys and hunting in the woods um well again i'd say visual versus audible if if it's a visual thing where they can see everything um you know i tend to like a little bit bigger spread yeah um if it's a if it's thick woods i don't see i don't really care <laughs> yeah i mean i'm okay not hunting with any decoys at all um so I, I try to think about seen versus heard, I guess. Yep. <sighs> Who's next? So, Brother Benjamin here. Oh, ben, yeah. Ben Kenny asks, uh, talk about calling at different times of season and habitat. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, I'll, I guess I'll hit that from the duck standpoint because I, I just don't, I'm not, I'm not enough of a goose nerd to really have a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think ducks act different in different environments. Like, there are certain places that ducks loaf and are really quiet. Mm. Um, for example, like, we don't hunt there a lot anymore, but I have hunted a lot on the Mississippi River right here out of town. And... There's a couple large, um, like, refuge habitat deals. Uh, I think one's a WMA and one's a state refuge. And they're, they're, they're waterfowl habitat that the government owns, okay? Yeah. Whatever uh, branch of the government. But, but those ducks will sit on food, and then they'll roll off, and they'll kind of loaf on the river. And they'll loaf on a sandbar, or they'll loaf kind of in a little pocket, and there's nothing there other than just some switch wheels and sure. you know like those ducks don't sit and quack. If you you, you can you can ease right up on a whole group of, of ducks and there'll be two or three hundred of them sitting there and they won't be like <laughs> but then you you come up on a group of ducks like in Biomita or in some green timber somewhere and they're happy and they're jumping around, they're kicking water and they're just, I mean, the water's on fire and they're making more racket than yeah. like they're happy and they're excited. Like those ducks are really talkative or you get a bunch of ducks in a, uh, you know, on a real active feed and they're, and they're making a bunch of racket and calling and chattering. And so I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, when I hunt somewhere, I try to imitate what I think they're doing there. Sort of like, you know, a bunch of people in a bar on Bill Street are going to be loud and <laughs> obnoxious and having a good Versus time. Versus on your back porch Versus, the same way. Oh, yeah, or sitting in the library, you know. And so am I hunting library ducks or am I hunting, you know, Friday night, you know, out <laughs> on the town ducks. You know what I mean? Like, I, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about library in Oxford, not the <laughs> library. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I'm just thinking about Ben's asking, yeah, how yeah. do you call different? And so what I'm saying is, like, wherever I'm at, I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm trying to imitate what they're doing right there. But then I'm also, I mean, the only real reason we use a call right is to is to get them close enough to shoot at them. Right. And so if I'm in the woods and there's a bunch of people around, obviously I'm calling because I'm trying to keep the duck's attention and not let somebody else have them. Yeah. If I'm, you know, if I'm on a sandbar or I'm somewhere where calling's not as at, at as high a premium or as necessary, I'm not calling as much. I'm calling just enough to kind of get them to do what I want them to do. Yeah, you know? just get their attention just a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, my buddy Jordan Graves asks, best advice on beginning caller basics, when to call building beyond the quack? Um, man, I don't feel like you ever really build beyond the quack. I think I know what he's asking there, but yeah, like stringing more of a lick together or something like that. I guess is what he's kind of yeah. So, um, what I tell people is the the best the two things you can do that will help your call more than anything is one record yourself on your phone. Yep, you got everybody's got a voice recorder, and uh, record yourself on your phone. Number two, don't make more than one quack at a time for a couple of months. I mean, a long time. Like, don't try to go quack, 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 quack. Just go quack and then stop and then pick your call up quack and try to make every quack exactly the way you want it to be. Clean. So that from, from you can go, you know, kind of like quick draw on your pistol. You know, you can pick your call up and just go from zero to and make that top quack. If you can make the top quack right, the rest of the quacks are easy after that. It's just stepping down the scale. But hitting the first note right is the biggest mm. mistake I see people make. And so you hear people have bad habits where they do things like, ah, 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 ah. you know, they kind of like ease into that first note instead of going, mah, 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 mah. they go, mah, 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 mah. you know, like make, yeah, it's make, like they're they, leading up to exactly it. like trying to work their courage up. And uh, I mean. That's just not how ducks make noise. Yeah. Duck makes ducks make five and seven note quacks. You know, yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. Yeah. And so the complicated stuff like mushy chatter and rolling and all that refuge stuff, man, I'm not good at that stuff either. I mean, that's that's cool stuff. I mean, some people can also tie knots with a cherry, you know, stem with their tongue. I can't do that crap. I mean, I don't need to. You know, like it's. I mean, it'd be neat if I could, but that's just not. I don't know when you'd need that skill. I don't either, but I mean, there's also lots of other random things people can do. They can drink milk and squirt it out there, you know, tear ducts and stuff. Like, I, okay, just because somebody else can do that doesn't mean I need to figure it out, you know? <laughs> that's a good point. So, I think you also touched on something interesting there that for someone who's new to calling. Um, let me hold on before you go hold ahead, that thought. Go I ahead. just want to say, I'm not at all knocking contest callers. I think it's awesome yeah. that people push their skill set You've been to, to be able to do all those things. Heck yeah. yeah I mean, so I, I'm not, a, I think that's, that's fantastic. <clears throat> For I, sure. But, but I also, I'm, I'm from a meat, I'm calling. not, a, I'm not a contest hater, but I'm also not the guy over here. That's like, if you can't blow like, like a meat call contest, like you don't need to be calling. Like mm -hmm. those, those are two different things. Yeah. One's a, you know, one's a contest to see, how technically sound, yeah. how, how capable you are of controlling your air. The other is what sounds do you need to be able to make to kill a duck? I mean, you know, and, and yeah. those are, they, they are two different things. Um, For sure. So, 
anyways. I, well, the other thing you kind of touched on too, um, that for a new caller, especially if you're, you're hunting somewhere and it's it's obvious that like you've been invited to call in some ways where it's like, yeah, you can call, right? So mm-hmm. like if you, you're hunting somewhere for, new for the first time, it's probably kind of want to swallow your call a little bit, right? Like don't call unless if somebody you, says. If you're, yeah, if you're, so etiquette wise, yeah, you're never invited to call. Yeah. Unless someone, no, no, I'm saying. You'll never be invited to call. Nobody will invite you on a hunt and say, hey, blow your duck call. It just doesn't happen. Hmm. Basically, it doesn't happen. I mean, I mean. No, that's a good way of saying to, it. I don't I, mean to toot my own horn, but I'm a world champ. Yeah. And I have never had somebody say, dude, why aren't you blowing your duck call? Literally. I don't think I can ever remember somebody saying that. If I go somewhere, I don't blow my call. Yeah. Unless somebody says like, "All right, one, everybody call," and like if they're if they're if they're kind of in generalities talking about like, "Let's make a bunch of noise," you know, or something, then I might participate. Sure. Um, but I mean, otherwise, I don't call until I'm in that group. Yeah. Well, I just guess- just simply because it's it's kind of like I mean, I you know, there's just it's just an etiquette thing. Well, like the- when you go to somebody's <clears throat> house, you don't just walk in, shake their hand, and then go back to their bedroom and 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 lay in the bed in the master bedroom kick your feet up and put your hands behind your head just like walk it, up open their fridge i mean it's like yeah exactly like you don't stuff. open you know you don't go in their bathroom and open all the medicine cabinets like yeah. why not well yeah it's just kind of awkward and rude you know for like, sure for there's sure. not a real direct explanation but I, you know it's just kind of yeah it's your thought better of if we you need don't, to do you know? like a, we need to do an etiquette episode on some of that kind of stuff later like the whole can i bring my dog well yeah no yeah don't ask <laughs> right yeah uh-huh. but um i guess what i was saying is like in in the case of a new caller, whether you're you're just hunting with friends, it's not like a really really formal situation. Yeah. If if you have in some way been indicated like, yeah, we need help calling. Gotcha. But it's that confidence and the courage to actually like sure sure open it up because they're gonna hear you. You might yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So if we're talking about like how to get better at calling and at and, live birds, yeah, and yeah, all that. I would say before you worry about complicated stuff, like literally, animals here cadence more than they hear anything else Mm. so whether whether you're yelping at a turkey or whether you're you know clucking at a goose or quacking at a duck like mimicking a cadence is is far more important than the pitch of the note and how many times you can do that in a row or whether you can roll your chatter for 17 minutes long i mean like i what i would focus on is I mean, what I'm teaching Trip right now is to be able to go, be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. When Daddy starts chattering, you start chattering. If you scout and you do your job, five-note quack and a little bit of chatter like that will do all you need it to do, period. I mean, yeah. again, I'm not hating on the contest callers. I I'm not the I shoot my judges kind of a, a guy like I think that's great but I, in terms of sometimes we overcomplicate things mm. you know and so we 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 make it like if you can't you know if you can't do a 90 second routine where you're red in the face and you know need some preparation H when you're finished then you don't need to be blowing your duck call <laughs> like like that's just silliness yeah. you know yeah um, so I would I'd focus more on cadence mm-hmm. I mean one of the best duck callers <laughs> I've ever hunted with hunts at white oaks a lot it's one of jeff's best friends named dustin garen and dustin is the most simple duck caller i've ever hunted with and that son of a gun can flat kill him better 
about as good as anybody I've ever hunted with. Yeah. And he does about three things. It's it's like the same little but he does it at the right times and he does enough of them and kind of throws them out and just kind of it's just kind of constant you know it's just and then and then when it's time to chatter he chatters but i mean it's just it's never you know it's never just it's never something that you're like dang that sounds awesome it typically the guys that are the best killers are not the guys that you're like, man, did you hear him calling? Like you don't, you don't notice them. They just kind of blend in because they sound realistic and you know, I mean, they're yeah. Anyways, when is it time to chatter? Um, that's a good question. Is it just a feel thing? Um, yeah, I chatter. uh, There's two kinds of chatter in the woods anyways. Um, Mm, there's kind of like a really aggressive rolling chatter that I think um, mimics the way like a big raft of ducks sounds where um, it's very, I like it to be very rhythmic, but very kind of a, a, almost an overwhelming sort of a power chatter. And I feel like that when ducks get close and they're listening, they're really trying to get to where the mass of that, chatter is happening and so um i mean there's a bunch of different ways to do it but i mean kind of one of our one of our old uh you know if 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 a big group of us 15 or 20 of us were hunting in the woods and it was dark i mean 15 minutes before shooting time we would start just calling and kind of power chattering and just troll for 15 minutes of just calling and not just quacking but just really loud chatter and then a few quacks here and there but mostly just a really really loud chatter and nine times out of ten you'll light a bunch of ducks that you never saw in the mm. in the air I got you. um so chatter is kind of a it's a little bit of a finishing call but um i guess would be the best way to to say it um i chatter just what you're communicating to the ducks is a lot there's excitement but contentment like it's happy yeah. there's happy stuff going on down yeah. here like you want to get here quick yeah. you know it's like a confidence thing for them to mm-hmm. to hear that and 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 in a dry field setting when i got a group of ducks that's coming they're coming hot and they're going to make like one loop like i'm going to and then when they get right on top of me, I'm just going to chatter simply because going deaf and no quiet and just completely quiet is a little more alarming to them and yeah. a little bit of noise, yeah. and so I may be going just to just to kind of create a little bit of white noise. So there's just nothing sudden, exactly. So yeah. it doesn't it doesn't go from you know a whole bunch of noise to just dead quiet. <laughs> and your ears start and, ringing because it's so quiet. Yeah. yeah, and so they you know they're coming, 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 and you start you know chattering, and they're real tight. They might make one half a loop, and you might hit them one time about two o'clock, and then just and just kind of back off of it so that you're you're you. just not startling them. That's really what you're trying to do is. Not screw it up. <laughs> That's the biggest thing in life. Is not. Screw but I mean, at the end of the try day, try not to suck. At know? the end of the day, man, the cool thing about hunting and calling, calling more than anything else is, I mean, Mother Nature's a pretty dang good teacher. You just go out there and do it, and you'll figure out your own way. Go do it watch. enough, and yeah, and try to learn. Always try to learn something and learn from their body language. And sometimes you figure it out. Sometimes you don't. I mean, they're still critters, and 
sometimes you do it all. I mean, it's not like if you do it all right, you're going to get them 100% of the time. Yeah. You're still going to lose some. Talk so. about it's not transactional. Like, yeah. You could do it all right, and it works, and you could do it all wrong, and it works. Yeah. And make you good or bad for either. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> there's definitely been times where I've done it all wrong and it was like, hot damn. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. all right. God, we got a bunch of I about to say we got a bunch more. Sheesh. We're an hour plus into it. Somebody's still listening. I feel bad for them. Nah. <laughs> all right. Let's try to they push know, through. They know what they're into by now. Episode yeah. 62. All right. Gravy Train. He's got three questions here. I'm going to jump yeah. four questions. I'm going to jump to all of them. What are you looking to do in your setup? Wind, sun, decoy spread? Well, I'm going to answer that one by itself because that's kind of complicated. Um, it all depends. So, if I have the choice, I love for the sun to be at my back and in their eyes. Yep. I like to use shadows to my advantage when I can. But, I mean, typically you got to have an east wind or a southeast wind in order to really put the sun in their eyes, and you just don't get a whole lot of those mm-hmm. uh, in our part of the world. Um we got a good, a, a nice east wind um, in Canada one day. Made a big difference. Yeah. Um, you just can hide better when the sun's in their face. But typically, I, in an ideal world, I like for ducks to be not dead center coming at you. I like them to be kind of quartering. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you shoot better when you're shooting sort of a, uh, a right to left or a left to right, like a sort of crossing shot versus a coming straight to you and then popping up. Yeah. Um, an, a bird that's coming straight to you, you have to actually shoot over it. Correct. You yeah. have to, you have to pull up underneath him until you have blacked him out and then pull the trigger Yep. versus a left to right. You get a real clean lead. And, and then in the left to right, if you got a whole bunch of people, you tend to kill more yep. because everybody's kind of shooting their lane. You well, I also find that I judge distance better when they're coming, when they're left or right, yeah. just because there's just, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's hard. I shoot better. Yeah, for sure. When they're coming straight at you, it's hard. They're coming, typically they're coming fast, and it's really, it's hard to judge that distance. Yeah. And then when you call the shot, from the time you call the shot to actually pull the trigger, they're already, they're either closer to you, or they're bugging out, or they're they're doing something different. So if I can help it, I really like to get a somewhat of a quarter and shot. Maybe it's just from, kind of from, you know, on the clock thing, if they're kind of coming from your 2 o'clock to your 8 o'clock like that, and it's not just direct on, it also mm-hmm. helps you hide better. Gotcha. Um, um, if, uh, I mean, and then sometimes if you don't have a good hide, we'll try to side shoot them where they're not, where when they line up, you know, they're looking down the line of hunters instead of dead at 12 guns left or right, you know what I mean? And so that, that tends to help um, if you can help it, if you got good wind. Um, but, man, hunting birds is 95% about wind, wind, location and wind. And so you need you need good wind. Um, good wind just changes everything, um, everything. Um, all right, he also, Gravy Train, also said, talk about guns, what's the setup for ducks and turkeys. Kind of hit on that. I shoot a, um, at turkeys, I shoot a Benelli M1 Super 90. I have for a long time. It's just kind of what I'm comfortable with. I shoot a red bead on the end of it, not any sort of a dot or an optic. Um, I shoot a 580 Jebs with TSS from Rogue. And then... Um, for ducks, I shoot 
uh, an SB3 um, with a 595 Jebs, and I like to shoot number four Kent's. It's kind of my favorite. Um, I When my SB3 got stolen in January, I got a new SB3, and it's the best coating the, mm-hmm. that they did two years ago, and it's got a carbon fiber rib on it. It's a little bit lighter than the other SB3s, and, man, it's that's the finest duck hunting shotgun I've ever shot. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I absolutely beat their teeth in with it in Canada. <laughs> um, <laughs> I shot that one on our first uh, Canada goose hunt. Yeah. Literally yeah. took it right out of the box and Dude, handed it, just, it to me, and it was it just, just right out. It's good. Yeah, it's it awesome. It was awesome. It's um, good. Um, kind of talk about the 12 and 20. Yeah, so. A little bit more drawn to the. Yep, so I shot the 20 gauge in Canada because um, Ian's gun, he, Ian didn't bring a gun, and then Hunter Wallace didn't bring a gun, so we kind of had a cluster of just travel arrangements and whatever, and I, I gave them my 12 gauges, and I shot the 20 as I was working the dog one day and just didn't think I was going to shoot as much. And then everybody in the world's just like, oh, man, you got to be shooting yellow shell at ducks. And, man, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I've got a little 20-gauge SB3 with a 26-inch barrel. And, um, I, honestly, I would probably shoot it all duck season. Um, I probably won't shoot my 12-gauge at all. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I didn't feel like I um, was undergunned. In the past, I kind of felt undergunned when I shot a 20-gauge like that at a like that at a forty yard shot, I was struggling. But man, I was knocking their teeth in with that little yeah. gun. And I and I've also heard, and then I experienced this. I feel like that the twenty gauge, the the recoil is so much less that you tend to point better and aim a little more, take your time. With a twelve gauge, I think it just kicks your teeth in so much that the gun bounces and it takes you longer to get back on target. Yeah. Um and so with the twenty gauge, I found myself after the first four, five, six volleys shooting with it, I just found myself more relaxed and taking my time and just kind of pointing and boom, boom, you know. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we weren't shooting hard shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like shoot, hitting mosquitoes with a, you know, tennis racket, but <laughs> I really enjoyed it. For sure. Uh, all right, and then he said favorite waterfowl recipe, so we're going to knock all gravy trainings out. Um, man... <sighs> I like to eat ducks a couple ways. I really just like poppers, to be honest. I like them very rare with bacon on them and cream cheese and a bell pepper. Uh, I also, if if there's a duck plucker around, I really, really like a whole duck roasted yeah. in the oven. And I just put them in a pan like a casserole dish, pour about a half a beer, a heavy beer like a – I say heavy beer, I guess, in the grand scheme of all the micro brews and hipsters running around these days. It's not a heavy brew, but like a Dos Equis or something that's kind of like a golden a darker amber, beer. A darker colored yeah. beer. Pour it in there and then stuff the carcass with like a stick of butter and a half of orange or something like that and put some tiny saturies on the, at, on the outside of it yeah. and cook it at like 400 degrees, 450 for maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah, Meat will be very rare, but the skin of a duck is unbelievable like and all that fat was people knew what it tasted like it'd be there'd be you know how there's memes about like bacon you know bacon (laughs) it'd be like duck skin it duck skin is that good it is (laughs) it's it's really good you just got to make sure to really get those feathers 
Oh man, that's why you pay somebody to pluck them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Ben made this thing. My my uncle's an engineer, and so Ben bought this plucker head. Oh and yeah, we hooked it up to like an old belt sander motor, yeah. and just like yeah, stick it on the table. Now it yeah. will straight up send feathers. Oh yeah, thirty feet in the air. Yeah yeah yeah. But like we do it when um, like when duck season is before Thanksgiving, like it mm-hmm. is this year. Mm-hmm. We'll hunt and then we deep fry our turkeys. Yeah, and so we'll pluck. Yeah. Some of those turkeys and we'll deep fry duck. Yeah, that's really good too. The other way that I did it last winter that I really liked was I just took some breast meat, just breasted out mallards, cleaned them up real good, no skin on them, and I um, put them on the smoker mm. at like 150, 170 degrees for a little bit, and just kept probing them with temperature until they get to like right at 135, where they're very, very rare, and put a or, or medium rare, and then just a little bit of like a dry seasoning on them of any kind, man, they knock your socks off. That's awesome. People, the problem with duck is people just overcook it. That's yeah. it. I mean. I like to chicken fry it too or country do fry Do you really? It. Mm-hmm. I hate that. You do? Yeah, you can't You can't keep it rare like that. Oh, yeah, you can. Ah, I, I can. Yeah. You got to cut bigger pieces. Yeah, I guess. I just you gotta, yeah, it tastes, start tasting like liver to me. Oh, but I kind of like it. that. See, I, yeah, that's. You don't like you know, chicken liver? No, that's gross. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Chicken livers are delicious. Stop. Stop talking. That's awful. <laughs> no, that's terrible. Duck, duck should not taste like a liver. Sorry. <laughs> oh, me. All right, where are we at? Uh, Colton McKinn. McMinn, maybe. Do we skip Ray when hunting a new area? Oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah, we did. Ray. Sorry, buddy. Uh, new my- area. Best way. It's all right, good. Get a new pulse uh, when you're hunting a new area. What's the best way to get a pulse on the ducks? Man, windshield time. Honestly, um, if if I was being dropped somewhere out of a helicopter and had to go shoot a limit of ducks, the first thing I would do is look on the map and I would try to isolate where my water was, where mm-hmm. I thought ducks were roosting, um, and where they were feeding, and then I would try to decide. Am I hunting a feed? Am I hunting in between a roost and a feed? Um, hunting a feed and being on the X is different than traffic. And so yeah. there's kind of two different strategies there. And so that's – but that's – if I was going to a place and trying to get a pulse on it, the the number one mistake I've seen people make is they try to hunt too soon. It's like when I go to Canada, I always allow a day, if not – a day and a half or some years two full days to do nothing but drive around and scout. Yeah. I mean, it just takes a little bit to kind of get a feel for what you're seeing. Yeah. Whether what you just – if you see some birds fly across, like is that just a random group or is that the hundredth group that's flown across? Yeah. Like it takes some time. Yeah. Some windshield time to like, get a feel for that. I guess if you're hunting in a place like Kansas and it's the middle of the day and you look out and every piece of water that's available, every pond or sheet water or something's got a few ducks on it. Do you try to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about hunting that spot, or are you gonna think about saying, okay, I'm gonna come out closer to evening and see if I can just start looking to where I see like there's well, a pool of birds yes. to fi- find a roost. Both. So, okay. First thing I do, Kansas is a good example. Okay, so um, if I was going to Kansas to freelance hunt, mm-hmm. probably wouldn't go to Kansas. There's a lot of outfitters out there, and it's a hard place to freelance hunt. But if I was going there geographically, like place that was very kind of dry, small water, and dry field feeding, okay? Um, I would drive around. I'd spend a day. Well, in the morning time, I'd be up early 
I try to see ducks in the air. I try to be places between big water. Instead of being at big water in the morning, mm-hmm. I'd be in between them so I could try to catch them in the air because they're going to feed for a little bit in the morning. They're going to feed for a little bit in the evening. From, say, for the 80% of the middle part of the day when there's not stuff in the air moving around, what I'd be doing is I'd be trying to isolate where they are on the water, and I'd be dropping pins. And so after all day of driving around, there's 100 over here, there's 200 over here. There's, I mean, sometimes you just look at the map and you go, well, I'll be dang. Like, they're all in this kind of in this big circle. I'll bet you anything they're feeding somewhere here in the middle of it or they're mm. – you start to see a pattern. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's a big water down here that they're roosted on and then there's a bunch of little – You almost ponds. make like your own little heat map of – that's exactly what you're that's exactly what you're doing yeah so try to i just try to i I try to visually get a feel for what i'm seeing on the ground i try to get that on a map so that i can kind of get an idea what they're looking at and and sometimes you just i don't know you just yeah and then sometimes you just come around a corner and there's a whole bunch of them sitting there and you're just like going right there that'll work yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly um and then past that if I was trying to get a pulse in a new area, I try to, I try to always have a backup plan, you know. Mm-hmm. So whether that's a water hole to shoot or a something, I try to always have a just what happens if we get screwed up on option one, we don't get this hole. What's our plan B? Um, and so if I'm driving around, I start trying to ask for permission as soon as I can. I mean, if I see a pond that's got a couple hundred on it. it Ten o'clock in the morning, and I think that's a viable backup plan. It's not their roost; it's their day loaf. Man, I'm gonna go ask that guy right then, and then talk to that guy and ask him what he sees, and try to get. Once you have permission, it's sort of like finding a job. Like, yeah, when you're unemployed, it's hard to find a job. But somebody who has a job, it's a whole lot easier to find another job while you're working for that job. It's just a weird thing, and so yeah. it's a whole lot easier to get second permission than it is first permission. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of. You're playing a little um, bit more loose too, as yeah, far as yeah, exactly. Um, I got you. Okay, so, huh? Where are we at? Golly, um, we're not being we're not being charged by the minute for this, are we? No. So <laughs> it's it's uh, Colton McMinn. Okay, uh, I don't know which one of those you want to answer. Uh, let's see. How do you break down an area as far as where to head to first and start finding birds on a trip? Oh, I guess we just um, answered that. Kind of just answer that. Yeah. It's all about water. Man, I, to me, I mean, there's a reason we lump ducks and geese and cranes all into one category called waterfowl. <laughs> it's because they're birds that depend on water. Yeah. So, I, no matter how you cut it, no matter where it is, old man once told me, good Lord made a duck to go the biggest piece of water he could find. And, I mean, it's just... It's true. Ducks and geese going to always be close to some big water of some kind. Um, so when I go to Canada or anywhere else, I mean, that's what I'm, I'm hunting water. At Arkansas is the same way. You know, we're, we're hunting the best water we can find. Um, all right. His net, his other question is what happened to Spence's eye in the new episode? So my eye has been a long I haven't had vision in my left eye since um, about 2009, I guess. It's been a 12, eight, eight or nine. It's been a 12 or 13 year. Um, woke up one morning, had a detached retina, and um, had a bunch of surgeries over a couple of years to try to repair that. It never worked. And I probably gave up on that in 2011, surgery being what I gave up on. Um, 
the part of the procedure they did back then to try to fix the retina included putting this real heavy oil in my left eye that basically holds um it's heavier than than the water that your eye makes mm. so it's so your retina is kind of like the liner in a pool once there's a hole the water gets underneath it and the negative pressure just lifts the liner off the yeah, pool yeah and it does that to your retina once you have a hole in your retina like the fluid in your eye gets behind it and it lifts your retina off and so that's basically what was happening over and over and over right so if they put so the heavy stuff in there, it kind of pulls it back. It, well, it pushes against it. It yeah. doesn't. It 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 has enough viscosity. They say to well, there's some significant side effects to that oil. It's not ever mended, it, It's not ever intended to stay in your eye longer than about thirty days. And mine's been in my eye for ten years now, or twelve years now. And um, that one of the side effects of that is glaucoma, which is the pressure in your eye is really really high. It glaucoma just means overinflated or, or high pressure in your eye. So while we were in Canada, um, kind of freak accident, I got hit in my left eye, which I don't have vision in, and that's really why I got hit. Yeah. If I'd have had vision, I'd have seen it coming and would have blinked, you know, and yeah. been fine. Just automatically, but reflexively, got, yeah. yeah. But I got hit with an empty shotgun shell hole, and, I mean, it hit me dead center in the cornea, and it kind of blew up my eye, basically. Um, it caused significant swelling. It bled internally and mm. and took pressures that were really high. Like, normal eye pressure is 15 to 18, I think. And my eye was running at about a high 30s. And when I got hit, it jumped to, like, high 50s. Um, and so it's kind of like if, you know, if your truck's meant to have – 30 pounds of pressure in the tires and you got one of the four tires that's running like at a 90, like it, it would be really uncomfortable in the other three tires. And that's kind of what happened to my eye. So yeah. long story short, post Canada last week, I had that eye removed. Um, I'd been considering having that eye removed over the last three or four years at various times because it's been very uncomfortable and painful. It's red. It doesn't open as much as the other one. And um, most folks don't notice because Guys like you and guys like Dylan have been pretty kind to keep the camera on the right mm -hmm. half of my body, you know. But, I mean, if I had to square up and take a picture, I look like a, you know, lumpy, goofy-eyed, you know, <laughs> knucklehead most of the time. So, um, I got my eye removed. And so, he, what he saw, and I guess in the episode, was I had a patch on my eye several days in Canada because of that, uh, because I got hit with that shell and that, uh, patch is going to unfortunately be there for a while this yeah. season. So, <laughs> hey, but that's good news though. It means it means relief is coming. Yeah, so, I guess I'm encouraged uh, by that. If yeah, you're not yeah. For no, you. I'm definitely encouraged. It's it's been a long road and painful. And I also uh, posted that picture of you with the. Oh, that's right. <laughs> On yeah. the day of your surgery, I wasn't sure. <laughs> Jeff Jeff goes, Rob, was that too a little too soon? soon? Yeah, I, I was that. like, you know, he's had this for a while. I was yeah. hoping this would just make him laugh. <laughs> it's never too soon. <laughs> so I was hoping you'd just laugh. Yeah, Pirate all, of the prairie, yeah. baby. Yeah, that's right. All my buddies have been trying to get me to wear a bottomland eye patch for years, and I should, but, man, eye patches are just uncomfortable. It is just annoying to have one I'm on. I'm sure. But it adds a little bit of, like, ethos. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's worth something. I probably will respect you more. <laughs> so that's funny. Um we've kinda we've kinda answered uh Connor Walter's question with the setup for freelancing and then yep. how to blow how to blow a cut down is, is kind of what we talked about, about. Man, 
I would let me speak to that. Yeah, jump on whatever you want to. I would just say how to blow a cut down bullet just like a regular duck call. Man, there's YouTube tutorials and stuff of guys out there telling you to really load your notes up and kind of go pop, pop, pop. And that's just bad advice. I mean, um, in my opinion, if you've got to pop air into a call like that, that call is entirely too stiff. A cut down is just like a – I mean, it's like driving a diesel truck versus driving a, um, you know, a Ford Explorer. Like, they operate the same way. You push the gas, it goes. You push the brake, it stops. I mean, you, it's not it's not a different routine. It's just it's just a little bit stiffer. It's not yeah. much stiffer. It's just a little stiffer. And so if you got one that's so hard you need some preparation H, you probably ought to trade it in and call <laughs> us and we'll get you one that's not so hard to blow. Uh, you don't see that as much anymore as you used to, but when cut downs was first kind of a thing, it was sort of a, I mean, it's a crass way of saying it, it was sort of a pecker measuring contest of like how stiff your call was to blow. And I mean, there was a guy for a while that used to call rolling thunder calls bitch whistles because he said they, they just weren't stiff enough. You know, and I was like, I mean, so at what point do we like, so we have, we have how many PSI it requires to make your read move is now determining exactly. whether or not you're a man. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, that's silliness. Um, so people kind of overthink how to blow a cut down. Man, blow it just like a regular duck call. Just uh, and then just adjust. Yeah, to I mean, a different tool. You're not gonna make a you're not gonna make a twenty five note high ball main street you know hail call kind of thing with it. Yeah, it's not designed for that. It reads heavier than that. But just keep it to a five and seven note quack. And yeah, you know that kind of don't answers, it. Uh, T. Bryant Seven's question from up, up higher about you know he said I've never blown a yep. cut down but thinking of trying one any tips for a, for this Kentucky boy buy one and give it a whirl man yeah I mean um, I will say in terms of tips though you know um, Michael Jordan Michael Jordan didn't just wake up one day being able to jump from the free throw line and dunk the basketball yep. like he had a lot of talent but he also spent a hell of a lot of time practicing yeah LeBron James did the same thing all the greats practice while I mean, you're you driving. Just, yeah, and so somehow it's like in in you know Steph Curry shoots a couple thousand jump shots a day, and we're all amazed at how well he can shoot a three pointer. But people expect to buy a duck call of the package and then blow it, and they don't sound like they like, and so they think, well, it's the duck call's fault. Well, you know, I mean, you wouldn't step out on the court with an NBA basketball game and expect to shoot sixty percent from the three point line. Nope. You know, in the flow of a game, and you got to practice. So yeah, your duck call is no different. You need to blow it. You need to practice it. Um, and and it'll make you a better hunter. Yeah. Hey, here's one. We might have missed this one that I think is really good, and this is going to be a huge rabbit trail, so we may have to end on this one. But Matthew Toon said, how do you start making calls, a.k.a. finding a jig, contacting a molder, materials, et cetera? Hmm. Um, man, <laughs> this, is, this is a little bit of a – hot button issue for me um because in like the last like five years i swear everybody is a call maker yep. <laughs> i mean there are more small shop custom you know guys who call themselves custom guys who are custom call makers and some of them are just insanely talented they're very artistic beautiful duck calls um some of them are awful and the guys need to sell their lathe and quit making duck calls like cut it out you know <laughs> Um, some of them are great. I mean, there's, there's it's just all across the board, but there's this flurry of, I mean, it's impressive. There, there are now there are like 
five or six years ago, there were maybe one or two gatherings of collectors of old calls. Mm-hmm. Now there's three or four or five a year of new call makers who all get together to like exchange calls. And so they'll make 20 or 25 calls and they'll give them away and they'll get 20 or 25 from other guys. Like they'll, yeah. they'll swap the jersey. That's awesome. I think it's really cool that there's the art of call making is, is as alive and well as it is. There's a dirty side of call making that drives me nuts and is a personal peeve of mine. And so yeah. I'm going to soapbox for just a second on it. And if you've listened this long, I, you know, Congratulations. You earned it. You earned it. Uh, but with technology the way that it is, um, computer scanners and um, three-dimensional CAD programs, you can take a duck call. You can take a Mondo, or you can take one of my calls, or you can take any call you want. And in three phone calls, you can have that replicated with a different external shape um, and spit out of a CNC lathe in a mill, you know, a CNC lathe, um, have the tone board cut on a mill, and have a finished acrylic duck call to you in whatever color acrylic you want, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or wood, or whatever material you want. There are multiple shops that do nothing but make batches of 100 or 200 duck calls for call makers. And I've used several of them. I mean, we continue to use some of them for various parts and components. Yeah. Um, but I, man, I just it it drives me nuts that some guys they want to be in the call business so much that they they um, they worry more about getting a product and having a product available to sell than mm-hmm. they do actually going through the laborious, tedious process of learning how to be a call maker. Yep. And um, you know. It's probably just the old crusty old geezer in me, but I feel like you ought to have to, you ought to have to have a lathe. You ought to have to be able to take a chunk of wood, turn it down, drill a hole in it, and and cut a tone board from scratch. You ought to have to be able to do that and make a duck call quack pretty dang good before yeah. you ought to be allowed to sell a CNC yeah. version of your call. What's well, the call maker versus the call producer? Yeah, I guess you could say about. it. Yeah, I guess you could say it that way. Um, and and so again, I'm not trying to throw shade any one particular direction or toward any particular person. I just it's a little annoying to me how many guys have a CNC run of their calls. Um, you know, I mean it. I don't know. There, there's just a there's a there's a or some cool things you learn in the process of just being a student of of the game. And mm-hmm. it's it's just like learning how to call ducks or turkeys. I mean, you can listen to a podcast, you can get all the advice in the world, but ultimately in order to really learn it, you need to go out there and get your teeth kicked in by some gobblers yeah. and get your teeth kicked in, in public woods before you really know what you're doing. You but know? I feel like and this is from somebody who cannot make a call, yours truly. But I feel like with anything, um, whether it's like me in photography or something else you find your style, you find your sound. I feel like if, if you were making a call your own and turning it, you find different things that are subtle that make the, make it work for yeah. you. Just like if I tried to rush too much with photography yeah. and bought presets and things that you things that are out there that you could just throw on top of a picture that you took mm-hmm. to edit it quicker 
but the fact that going through and going through that process of taking some really bad stuff and learning the process and how to how to edit your photos and those things like that you find your style that's right yeah all of that is very true um all that's true and and so it yeah anyways it's look the call business has been very good to me and i i don't i don't i hope this doesn't come across like being snooty and don't want there to be competition in the call business i mean that's what makes everybody better i think it's wonderful that call making i mean 10 years ago nobody gave a rat's rear about a custom duck call like custom duck calls were not a thing mm-hmm. i mean it was there were just a handful of guys around the country that made ornate custom duck calls and i mean now there's hundreds of guys who are and they're insanely talented. They're learning how to checker. They're learning how to stipple and do all these different little techniques that yeah. to make cool things. And I think that's so awesome. I think that's so neat. But then there's, like, this group of guys who who aren't learning any real skill but who really kind of want to be in that group of people, like want to be in the yeah. cool kids club, I yeah. guess. And and so they, you know, they go and they, they create something, and, and next thing you know they got – three different models and blah, blah, blah. And they're, you know, they're, they're the next latest, greatest expert on blah, blah, blah. Like just, yeah, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. And, and it'll, it'll, I guess it'll always be that way. It's America. It's a free country, but yeah, uh, I, you know, I think it's, how do you get started, man? It's, it's a three, four, five year process. Like you really want to do it right. Learn, you know, go learn how, I mean, there's no substitute for practice and repetition it's like shooting three pointers or taking pictures. Like you're just going to be better after you've taken twenty thousand attempts at it than you are yeah. first ten. And we yeah. live in a world where people want what people want to do now is say, "Well, I got you know a couple five gallon buckets over here of inserts that I, I had them a flat jig and blah 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 and did this did that and you know I finally I found my sound." You know, no, you didn't. Not in 45 days. I'm sorry. That's just not true. Like, there's not enough hours in the day time yeah. for you to learn. Like, this is a multi-year pro- – like, just is. So, yeah. it it's fine. I mean, and they'll, those guys will sell calls, and it'll be great and good for them. And, you know, but it annoys me. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's just a couple more I want to get to. Okay. I want to get to our buddy Caleb's. He, right. has, he asked a couple that I'd like for – for us to touch on. All right. And one of them was, if you could tell one, this is uh, Caleb Copeland at Cope Creative, but if, he said, if you could tell one waterfowl story, what would it be? Ooh, man. Um, like, budget's not an issue. You can shoot it and produce it. And, Caleb, you better not go do this story if, <laughs> if we say it. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't thinking about that, like in terms of like a film or a or or just a or a story about. I I think I think we're coming at it from. I mean, maybe it's just you writing it out, or you if there's that kind of stuff. That's uh, interesting because there's lots of different ways you could look at story. Um, one waterfowl story. What would it be? I I don't man I don't know. I think it'd be neat to tell. I, I'd like to, uh, you know, kind of the the Arkansas legend, who's who's passed. He actually died on opening day of duck season. Um, was Lester Caps? 
he's kind of the grandpa of the modern age of cut down olts and um man he was a a guide and by me to all through the the glory years and he apparently used to tell stories of when there were so many ducks that his his dad and grandpa who were farmers there and um uh, around by you know kind of south of by me to there around dewitt uh, he tells story used to tell stories that they would there'd be so many ducks that they would have to burn tires in their rice fields at night to, to keep, keep the ducks out. from eating the rice crop before they could get it harvested um and so i think it'd be neat to i think it i think there's some old timers that could tell some stories of the early 1900s and i'm probably getting the periods wrong but i mean you know there was a time where the mallard limit in Arkansas was like twenty five a piece or fifty, mm. and that was a that was a sport. It wasn't. We're not talking about market hunting. We're talking about five guys go and they you know, shoot one hundred and twenty five ducks, and and that that was their limit. You know, that was a federal limit kind of thing. Um, so there's there's, I just I don't know. I've I've always kind of been interested in that. That'd be really Arkansas cool. history. Um, and I'd love to hear it through the eyes of a guy like that that I didn't didn't have the privilege of knowing, you know, on a personal basis. Um I guess that'd be mine. Um <laughs> I don't know, that's a hard question. That is a hard question. I don't like it's picking a... out favorites and ones. I like oh, I, know, I can think yeah. of five things. <laughs> but um which one you want to do next? Hmm. Uh, I I can answer Ben's real quick. If yeah, you go ahead. Go back to one of Caleb's. What are ways to help cut down on hunting pressure possible on land hunted all around you? Man, it's pretty hard, um, especially in a place like Arkansas. Um, you know, there's just a lot of hunting pressure all around you, and you can do whatever you want on your place. But, man, if, if all your neighbors are hunting – you you laying off your place five or six days is not typically going to do much unless you've just got a huge piece of ground. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we understand how negative hunting pressure is on the on the birds on on the ducks. Um, I think it moves them around a whole lot more than we give it credence for, and um, I hate to see things like public land limited, mm. especially you know, limited opportunities like cutting, you know, out-of-staters from 60 to 30 days and stuff like that. But, I mean, one of the biggest things that they could do in some of the big public tracks is limit access and and have less Hmm. hunting pressure. And I don't know if that's – I don't know what the right way to accommodate that is. I don't know if they should have a 90-day period of time where there's 60 days across that 90 days or whether it should be 90 days, a 90-day window where – there's hunting allowed for 45 of those 90 days, but kind of the everyday just grind of of the ducks just getting their butt handed to them in public land. I mean, it's no wonder that, that public land has just declined in, yeah. in terms of quality of opportunity Sure, so aggressively over the last 20 years or so. So I don't know. Um, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I mean, is there are there negative – reasons for not wanting to hunt your land every day 
I mean, if I, let me ask that a different way. Are there benefits to not hunting it every day? Measurable benefits, you think? Depends. I mean, depends on whether, like a place like where Ben's talking about. I mean, I know where Ben hunts. Yeah. And he doesn't have ducks that live right there where he's hunting. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's hunting traffic. Mm-hmm. So he could hunt his place every day. It's really not going to matter. Pressure is not going to affect his exact spot the way that it would affect, say, my river bottoms. Yeah. Where I don't have traffic flying over my river bottoms. If I got 100 ducks, that's all I got. So yeah. when I shoot, you know, if I shoot those 100 ducks, it's going to be a week before I get another 100. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask for something like you. Would you be a candidate for, like, stopping at 10 o'clock? We don't hunt afternoon. We don't hunt after 10 o'clock. We don't hunt after You eight, can, but, I mean, rea- I think it just – I think you got to be a student of your place. I think yeah. it just depends. At my place, I don't think it matters. If you're going to hunt it one day, I don't think it matters whether you quit at 7.30 or 9.30 or 11. I mean, yeah. you're, you've you've shot it out for – You boogered for, it. Yeah, you boogered <laughs> yeah, it for it a second. That's right. I mean, it's it's kind of like kind of like resident geese. I mean, shoot them as long as you want, but yeah. you're not, you're not going to hunt that field again for a year or two. Like, yeah. They, you know. Speaking uh, of, I cannot wait to see – Ducks coming in up there at the river bottoms. <laughs> no kidding. That's going to be so special. No kidding. So cool. I, but, I mean, I guess the biggest, the best way to answer Ben's question, because I'm not an expert, but just be a student of your place. Observe it. Yeah. Notice if we don't hunt one day, we lay out, like, does that help our hunting the next day? Mm-hmm. Or does it seem to be irrelevant? That's one of the things about Jeff Farmer that I really admire and appreciate is he's always trying to figure out what he can do to make his place better, both – developing habitat, managing water, but he's also really cognizant about pressure. And so he's got a couple spots on his place. He could hunt them every day and hunt them till noon every day. And I mean, never stop shooting probably. And it wouldn't matter because they're traffic spots, but then he's got other spots. If he shot them, it'd be the only time he shoots them for a couple of days. And so he's, he's just, he's always being open-minded and trying to pay attention to how his, behavior and his hunting affects his population of ducks and if we all kind of went at it that way it'd yeah. be a different be a different world be a different yeah. flyway. i mean it's similar to the conversations we've had with mike chamberlain about the turkey yep. world and we've yep. had with david hawley and it's very similar it's like unless everyone absolutely just straight up says okay we're not hunting on this day and not doing this thing and not hunting after this time it's really yep. hard to unless your neighbors are on board yep it's really hard to influence something on a big scale for sure. So it is, it is hard. Um, but you know, you keep trying, I mean, giving up doesn't help either. So no, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying to do yeah. something, but, um, here's one from squints McGee ducks, geese, or turkeys, man, I should probably let you answer this question. Cause I've answered it so many times, <laughs> but I, you know, the good Lord put them all different, different times of the year. Yeah. So it's I like, don't think we ought to have to pick. It's like trip. Yeah. When he was saying that, Dad, I think, uh, I think like when it's duck season, it's ducks, and when it's turkeys, it's turkeys. <laughs> That's and when right. It's geese, it's geese. Yeah, yeah. There's things I like about them. They're they're all different. I mean, it's, yeah. You know, you don't have to pick necessarily. So it's, um, I he, turkey depends, season's growing on me tremendously. Oh, it depends on the day you ask me. But I yeah. mean, I love shooting big honkers, but they're not even close to shooting mallards or shooting a, a turkey there's an intimacy to turkey hunting that that duck hunting will never achieve so sure they're just it's such a different conversation something he left off that list was was cranes 
I love a crane. He didn't leave that off the list. <laughs> we had those cranes coming in. There was like one time we had, there was like 10 cranes close and then like a small five pack of ducks. And I was like, don't shoot the ducks. There's cranes. And everyone's like, huh? Stop talking about cranes, Rob. Hey, got but, a crane obsession. Dude, they're they're unbelievable. They're I'm getting, so weird. I'm getting you, you know, crane silhouettes for, your, for Christmas. <laughs> we can keep them at your house. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Well, awesome. Well, I think we've we've pretty much touched on every single question we got, or if if we didn't, it was. I mean, Katie asked a series of questions here, but I don't know if we want to answer anything. Here's one from Braden Bagley. How do I get a job with you guys? Fill out an application, dog. If you want to work for eight fifty an hour, man, we got all kinds of work lined up. <laughs> uh, man, we don't have much in the way of fancy career opportunities, but we got. Lots of stuff that needs to get done. So if you if you want a job, send us a message. We'd love to talk to you. Hope you're willing to come to Memphis. We don't have much of a um we're not much for the what do they call it? Remote remote opportunities. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to work in a call shop distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh Katie Alford asks, What did the shark say when he ate the clownfish? <laughs> he tasted funny. That's good. She has about 19 girl. other That's ones. That's my girl. <laughs> she, she, she cracked me a up. Good, a good dad joke. Yeah. Oh, she's she's ready. So, <laughs> well, awesome. I, um, unless there's another one, another one I'm missing. But we we really appreciate y'all's y'all's listening, and this has been a ton of fun for us. And I love yeah. the, love getting the questions. And if y'all have more, send them. We'll try to. And don't feel like you you just need to send them when we ask. I mean, if you send them to me. Um, Rob Kenny underscore photo or send him to the Rolling Thunder page. We'll we'll try to sneak him on there here and there too. So. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Yeah, uh, it's crazy the listenership or whatever the what's the word you use for audience? Oh, the audience. Great. Kind of talked out, Rob. That it's it's been fun <laughs> to see the audience grow um, in the podcast. And man, we've been just struggling to get one out every week but it's like the numbers keep going up and we really appreciate everybody listening and appreciate all our sponsors kent lucky duck mossy oak shin gear so absolutely well appreciate y'all we'll see you on the next one all right be good